Second Chronicles 34. Tonight we'll witness Judah's last good breath of fresh air. We will see the kingdom gasp for, for final breath as the people go into captivity. And we begin with the 17th king in the direct line of David. He was responsible for the fifth and final revival in the kingdom of Judah, and his name is Josiah. Chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Eight years old. I mean, eight years old. I was playing with Legos far into my teens, and he was an eight-year-old, is king over all of Judah. It's absolutely astounding. Josiah would be the most consistently righteous king of all the kings of Judah, even including Hezekiah, who was great. Though David is the gold standard, Josiah is as great in terms of righteousness and faithfulness and trust in the Lord, and he is by far my favorite of all the kings. I love Josiah. Now he would have eight formative years from this point. He becomes king at eight, and and over the next eight years he grows up, he develops, he leaves the people somehow, amazingly. And at the age of 16, we get to see Josiah begin to own his own faith in the God of his father David. Verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. George Barna said if a person is ever going to become a Christian, the research indicates that he or she will do so before reaching the age of 18. The vast majority of people who claim faith in Christ will do so prior to 18. Josiah is 16 and he is at that place where he grabs hold of his faith and says, this is mine. The statistical range is 75 to 85% of Christians will claim faith in Christ before the age of 18, which is why youth ministry is so absolutely critical. It's why children's ministry matters so much. That we breathe into and teach our kids, our teenagers, constantly giving them the word of Christ because that decision, that critical one, is going to be made for most of them before the age of 18. Now that also means that the critical decision to reject Christ is made for most people before the age of 18. I want to thank you all for signing up to teach in our children's ministry. Michelle called me last week and she said she was overwhelmed. She said, I have more people than I can use right now. And she was so excited. And I just said, praise God. What that tells me is we have a fellowship who recognizes the value of these kids and how much they matter. 16 years old, he owns his faith. This Josiah, he puts on the mantle of godly manhood and he sets out as a 16-year-old on stage one of the fifth revival there in Judah. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, In the twelfth year, then he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. Now he is 20 years old. So he's gone from 8 to 16 to 20 here in these first few verses. Verse 4, They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images and the molten images, he broke in pieces 
and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. This, this guy is serious. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins, and I hope you recognize verse 6, we're talking about the territory of Israel, not just Judah. It was not enough to Josiah to purge Judah. He's going after the entire land of Israel. All of the land that God promised. He, he determined there would not be idol worship or idol sacrifice or even a leftover remnant of an idol anywhere in the land as far as he was concerned as long as he was the king. Verse 7, he also tore down the altars and beat the Asherim and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem as a 20-year-old. Massive reform. Now there are several stages. We've looked at revival from different angles because of the great revivals that are mentioned here throughout the book of 2 Chronicles. Five of them. And here in, in revival number five, I want to point out the stages we see going on here. Several of them are familiar. This first one should be, although I don't think we've looked at it this way before, stage one, removing the obstacles. Stage one of revival is the removal of all obstacles, anything that is, that stands between you and God. Josiah recognizes this, and he goes throughout the land, removing everything, tearing it apart. Now, some might say, well, I thought stage one was repentance. Same thing. Same thing. But, but here's how we need to look at this. Bible students, what does the word repentance mean? To turn away from? Or to turn toward? It's both. It's turn away from and turn toward. Now oftentimes people will come to Christ. They'll come to the Lord and they'll say yes to new life. But they have not said no to old life. They'll turn to God, but they're not turning away from the idols. What Josiah does here is fantastic. He says, we're going to tear down, we're getting rid of the obstacles. There's not going to be anything for the people to turn back to. As we repent, we turn toward God and we turn away from the old things. You you can't cling to the Father while groping for the world. It will trip you up. And in our very watered-down approach to God in the world today, that's what most people tend to do. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian now. I've started going to church. See you at the bar Friday night. Turning toward, but not turning from. God is calling our hearts completely. Remember, we've talked about being wholehearted and being transformed. Because real repentance means that you turn toward God and you turn away from whatever it is that could possibly trip you up. True repentance means removal. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30, the Lord told Israel, Repent and turn away. Now you read that and you think, well, okay, well, wait a minute. Turn away and turn away? No. Turn toward, repent, and turn away from. Repent. Two aspects of repentance. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. With the Lord, it's always repent and. Repent and turn. Repent and Remove, Because the turning of repentance goes both ways. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 tells us after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into the Galilee. This is the message he was preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's always repent and. Turn toward God, turn away from. Because a heart of repentance, true repentance, produces removal. 
John the Baptist said when he was preaching, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now you can any time come forward on a Sunday morning and say, I repent of all the things that I've done. I repent of the sin and the wickedness of my life. I repent. But if you don't turn, it was not repentance. It was empty words. As a pastor, when someone tells me I'm repenting of something, that's what I'm considering. Praise God, I'm glad the words are coming out. But how's that going to play out in your life? Is there going to be fruit of repentance? The word used in our passage here, at least two, twice, uh, three times actually, down in verse 8 included, is the word purge. Purge. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 8 tells us Josiah purged Israel. The word in the Hebrew is taher. Taher. It means purification and cleansing, specifically for moral purity. To purge the land, to make it morally righteous and pure. So you can look at it this way. The word is taher. So repentance is turning to God and tahering ourselves away from the world. That's just to help you remember it there. Taher. A moral purification. That's revival stage one. Verse eight. Now in the 18th year of his reign, now he's 26 years old, if you're tracking that along, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Stage two, repair the house of the Lord. Stage one, remove all obstacles. Stage two, repair the house of the Lord. Because when a person turns to the Lord and from the world, they want to be as close as possible to His presence. And the only way to do that is to repair the house of the Lord. Under Manasseh and Ammon, the temple had come under great disrepair. It was a messed up place. There were idols inside the temple. Even in the holiest place, there were idols set up. The temple needed cleaning out. Because God said, remember, He told Moses and the people, above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, there in the Holy of Holies, I will meet you there. The tabernacle was called the Tent of Meeting. The temple was the place of meeting. It was the spot in all Israel where God called all Israel together at the major feasts and festivals. Come to Jerusalem and meet me there. And be in the place of my presence. You remember when the temple was was first uh, prayed about and built and Solomon stood up in front of it and he prayed and the Shekinah glory of God entered the temple. His presence was there. And man, part of repentance of turning to the Lord is I want to be where He is. I've experienced His grace and forgiveness which is what brought me to repentance in the first place. Now I want to be in His presence. But to be there, there's got to be a repair of the house of the Lord. Verse 9 tells us they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They gave it into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord used it to restore and repair the house. Remember, Hezekiah did the same thing. They in turn gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for the couplings and to make beams for the houses in which the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. The men did the work faithfully with the foremen over them to supervise, Yehath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites and the Levites, all who were skillful with musical instruments. I'm not sure what they were doing in the repair. 
if they're just playing music so the workmen could have something to groove to. I'm not sure. But they were there. And verse 13 says, They were also over the burden bearers and supervised all the workmen from job to job. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Repair the house of the Lord. Now as amazing as it may sound, the house of the Lord today still needs repair from time to time. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, You are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How can we do that? How can we offer up spiritual sacrifices? And how can we worship when the house of the Lord is in disrepair? When the temple of the Lord is broken? When relationships in the house of the Lord are damaged. How can we sit and... Have you ever been mad at someone and tried to worship? You ever come into church and sat down and you're just angry? Someone's been a jerk to you. Maybe it was your spouse. I don't know. And you're sitting there and you want to worship, but you can't get that moron off of your mind. You can't break through. That's because the house is in disrepair. We've got to repair the house of the Lord. Jesus says, if you come to the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, go make it right. Because you can't worship in the house when it's in disrepair. There's only one answer to restoring true heartfelt worship and worship that is uninterrupted by bitterness and anger and hurt. And that is to repair the house. And it's not easy. But it must be done. Colossians 3.12 Paul says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility which by the way you need if you're going to repair a relationship gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you so also should you which by the way is the standard see we've entered into a relationship here with Jesus Christ who gave his life for us and we have no business being unwilling to give as much of ourselves as it takes to repair broken relationships in the Lord. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, Paul says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, repair the house of the Lord. Because until you do, you are not going to be able to come into His presence. And Josiah understood that. With the house, literally, the temple broken down, the people would not be able to come worship there. It had to be repaired. I want you to notice something else here I I just think is interesting. We've already seen a hint of this. Where did the money come from to repair the house? Look at verse 9, because it tells us specifically, the last half of verse 9. We got Manasseh. We have Ephraim. All the remnant of Israel and Judah, Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now I point this out to you for one reason. Eighty years earlier, Assyria wiped out Israel. Eighty years earlier. There's a theory that that continues today about the lost tribes of Israel. That when Assyria destroyed northern Israel, the people were wiped out, were taken into captivity, eventually made their way over into Europe somewhere, and, and they became you know, Europeans. And, and that's the actual, it's called British Israelism. And that's true Israel. And it's not. You see, there's truly no such thing as the lost tribes, because there's always been a remnant of Israel in Israel. 
And here we see this as proof of it. Eighty years after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, we see Manasseh, Ephraim, and the remnant of Israel still there. And Josiah looks beyond the borders of just Judah. He has a mind for the kingdom. He's thinking about the larger promised kingdom of God, and he reaches out. And he calls upon Ephraim and Manasseh. And he, he even, as we saw back in verse 6, he went into the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali up in the north. And he wiped out the idols there. This man was a leader, not just of Judah, but of all the people of Israel. This king said, we are the people of God. And whether we split in the past, or whether we've been enemies in the past, and whether the northern kingdom has fallen to Syria or not, there are people belonging to the house of the Lord here, and all of them matter, and Josiah reaches out and draws them all in. It's wonderful. Since Abraham, well actually, since the people came back into the land, out of Egypt, back to the land, there has always been a Jewish presence in the land. Now, the media today would say that's not true. The Palestinian people would say that's not true. They would say that they were all driven out and that we had the land. There has always been a Jewish presence in the land from the first return of the people of Israel. I find that interesting. Now the next stage is something we see in every revival. We see the removal of the obstacles. We see the repairing of the house of the Lord. Stage 3. Returning to the Word of God. Verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Make a mental note of this. That means that the book of the law had gone missing. Which means further that nobody knew what was in the book of the law and nobody was studying the word and nobody had a clue about it whatsoever. Verse 15, Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord and they have delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. Verse 18 tells us, Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king saying, Oh, by the way, (laughs) I'm adding that, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. I mean, the indication here is Shaphan doesn't even know what it is. And Shaphan read it. He read from it in the presence of the king. Watch this. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. In the Middle East, even today, but especially back then, the tearing of the clothes was a sign of great emotional distress. Rarely, but sometimes it was a sign of great joy. But in this case, Josiah is distressed. He tore his clothes because he is torn up Inside, he, he realized as the word he was hearing was spoken to him that it had been completely neglected, absolutely ignored, and it tore him up, and he heard something terrifying as it was read. What did the, say, what, what did the Lord say would happen if the people neglected His word? Deuteronomy 32 verse 46, "Take to your heart all the words which I am warning, with which I am warning you today." which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. This is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Further in the book of Deuteronomy, we see blessings and curses. In fact, God was so serious about it that He said, when you come into the land, I want you to sit half the people on Mount Gerizim and half the people on Mount Ebal. 
And I want you to start calling out. I'm going to give you a list of blessings. And when you call out those blessings, and they're good blessings, then all the people on Mount Gerizim are going to represent the blessing people. And they're going to say, Amen. And all the people on Mount Ebal, and there's a great valley in between. Joshua stood in that valley and called out the blessings. And the people on Mount Gerizim, they called out, Amen. And then he called out the curses. And all those standing on Mount Ebal said, Amen. And the people accepted the covenant that God was making with them in the Mosaic covenant of blessing and curse. If you keep my word, you get blessing and wonderful blessings. If you deny my word, if you neglect my word, the curses are coming. Josiah tears his clothes because he recognizes the curses are on the way. The people are so far away from the word of God, they didn't even know where it was. I wonder how many people hear a Bible verse. Maybe they go as a friend to church or they hear it on the radio or something and they want to look it up so if they go home and they go, I know I've got a Bible around here somewhere. (laughs) Have you ever lost your Bible and gone looking for it? Where is that? I was reading out of it just last year. The people have forgotten the Word. And Josiah hears some very disturbing things. By the way, there is an intriguing question that arises here. If Josiah now, at the age of 26, is just now hearing the word, how did he know at the age 16? How did he know to follow the Lord? How did he know as a 16-year-old to tear down the idols and follow the God of his father David? How did he learn that? How did he understand that? He certainly did not learn it from daddy O. <laughs> His dad, Ammon, who multiplied guilt upon guilt. Grandpa was Manasseh, the most wicked king in the history of Judah. He may have heard it, I guess, possibly from some of the prophets. We know later, and we'll see this tonight, when Josiah dies, that Jeremiah himself, the great Jeremiah, issues a lament. Of course, Jeremiah was always lamenting something. How did Josiah know? How did he know? How is he aware of what to do? I'm going to throw out just a possibility here. We can't know for sure. But I have a sense that it was Grandpa Manasseh. Because if you recall from last week, chapter 33 tells us as wicked as Manasseh was, he got taken into captivity and then in that place of his distress humbled himself, repented and cried out to the Lord and God restored him and Manasseh would spend the rest of his life trying to right all of his wrongs. It would be too little too late for his son Ammon, who would be as wicked, if not worse, than his dad was. But grandson Josiah, he had to hear it from somewhere. And I wonder if Manasseh wasn't the one who came along. And I say that just to point out to all of you, even if you come to faith in Jesus later in life, it's never too late to leave your mark on on a following generation. You may look at your own children and say, I don't know how to get to them. You may not be able to. You may have to leave that to the Lord and somebody else, but you may yet be able to get to the grandkids. I think maybe Manasseh had something to do with Josiah's early faith. So they read from the book. Josiah tears his clothes. Verse 20 says, The king then commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us, because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So, Josiah's worried. 
He knows what the curses are. What he wants to find out now is, is the Lord going to follow through on these? Is it too late? Are the curses on the way? Have we blown it? We've got to talk to a prophet. Guys, go talk to one of the prophets and see what they have to say. Go talk to them. I think this is interesting. It says in verse 22, So Hilkiah and those whom the the king had told went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe, and she lived in a quarter in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her regarding this. Now, let me ask you a question here. Why did they go to Huldah? This is the only time we hear about this prophetess in Scripture. We haven't heard of her before. We will not hear of her again. Why did they pick her out? These were the days, gang, of prophets like Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Why, if the king sends you to the prophets, why would you pick this female prophet over here when you've got some of these great prophets of the Lord right there in town? Now, possibly it was just because she was highly esteemed among the prophets, very well trusted, and always brought a sound word from the Lord. So that's, that's entirely possible. I think maybe they were hoping she'd give a good report. Because these other guys certainly weren't. If you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was never giving a good report. In fact, all that came out of Jeremiah's mouth was, Here come the curses. Here come the curses. Judah, you're going down. So they go to Huldah. They knew Jeremiah would give them a bummer report no matter what happened. And I just thought, you know, it's interesting. We have a tendency ourselves to go listen to those who we think will say what we want to hear. As opposed to going to those who are going to speak truth. That's why we come back to the Word. Because we know the Word's going to speak truth. Whether we like it or not. Whether it makes us uncomfortable or not. We know the Word is going to speak truth. We need truth. Well, they have no such luck with Huldah. Verse 23, she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. It's coming. It's going to happen. She says in verse 25, Because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place. It shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring about on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. Verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing, check this out, all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Do you realize what he did? Gathering all the people, he opened up Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And he started to read. And when he finished Genesis, 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and he kept reading. And then he got to Leviticus and didn't stop. And he got to Numbers and did not stop. And he got to Deuteronomy all the way through, at least at a minimum, he read the entire five books of the Torah while the people were there gathered before him. I just want you to appreciate the brevity of tonight's study by comparison. Verse 31. Then the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. And throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. He had an amazing spiritual influence on the people. His influence was so great that as long as Josiah was alive, the people stuck to the Lord. They did not go back to worshiping the idols. They didn't go back and rebuild the high places. As long as he was king, as long as he lived, they followed God. Why? Because with Josiah, and please get this, it was personal. It wasn't religion for him. He loved God himself first. We saw that as a 16-year-old. He owned his faith. He walked after God. He didn't do it because he thought it was what he needed to do to be a good king. He followed the Lord because he loved the Lord and he believed. And that kind of faith will influence people. Religious faith that you just do for the way it looks, that's not going to influence anyone because people see right through it. But when you walk in the integrity of your faith because you just love Jesus, you will influence people. You will change lives. It all started in Josiah's heart because it mattered so much to him. And that's the best way for us to influence this world. Focus on Jesus. Love Him more and more and more in your personal life. You know, I'll even go so far as to say, I don't think we have to worry about plans of evangelism. If we love Jesus, we will be evangelical. And the more we love the Lord, and the more time we spend with Him in relationship, the more it's going to come out in our other relationships. You cannot help it. So I think that's the best evangelical plan right there. Love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Go after Him, pursue Him, spend time with Him, and you will be a world changer. Chapter 35, verse 1. Then, Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. That's as God prescribed. Verse 2, he sent the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. So, in this fifth and final revival... Josiah does the same thing Hezekiah did during the fourth revival. He celebrates what's called in the Hebrew the Pesach, or Passover. Passover, as you recall, recalled how Israel was redeemed by blood out of bondage. It was the central feature of Jewish faith. And I think that in revival today in the church, and I don't mean to badmouth the attempt that people make to get closer to God and to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I think we've made revival far too much about ourselves and about our experience. And we want revival because of what it will do for us. As opposed to making revival about Jesus. About being focused in on Him. Revival is first and foremost about the Lord and about what He has done, not about what happens to us when it takes place. 
And so we come to stage four of the revival here. And it is remembering the memorial. At the center, the heartbeat of revival here is the remembrance of the memorial. Verse 3 goes on, and he said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord your God and His people Israel. Verse 3 is interesting. We thought the ark had gone missing. Well, there it is. And what's going on here, gang, is that the ark was not in the Holy of Holies there in the temple. It had somehow been removed, probably during Manasseh's reign. If you look back at chapter 33, verse 7, it says he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God said to David and Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Apparently what happened is Manasseh had the priest go in and just get rid of or take out the Ark of the Covenant so that he could put his idol, his homemade, handmade, garage-made idol that he stuck there into the Holy of Holies. And invariably, this is how faith is lost. Now think about this with me. We begin to go after homemade idols and self-centered solutions. Things that we think will work in our lives. We begin to forget the Lord and we develop and build these idols. Oh, it might not look like an idol. It might not be a carved image. But something that, that helps your life work better than church. Better than the Lord. Better than a relationship with Jesus. You think, you know, that, that's good, but I really need this extra time here to focus on my job. And so I'm going to give it there. And that idol begins to get built. And when we go after homemade idols and self-centered solutions, Christ ultimately gets removed from the holy place of our lives and we stick our idol there instead. That's where it goes. That's what Manasseh did. That's the problem we have right now. We replace Jesus with the idols we've constructed and there is only one remedy. There's only one way to fix it and that's to remember the memorial. Which even before doing Passover here, as they're preparing for it, Josiah says, get the ark back where it belongs. Put the ark at the heart of the temple. And for us, that's why we go back to the cross on a weekly basis. That's why even in our studies, I've been surprised, but in Second Chronicles, how often communion comes up. How often this memorial. Because Passover for the Jewish people, remember, Jesus turned it into, it gave it its full flavor. Jesus broadened it for us to understand what it was really about. What we didn't realize before. We thought it was about a slaughtered lamb. It wasn't. It was about the slaughtered Christ. And the lamb was just that picture of Jesus. And he shows us that. And then he hands us the memorial and says, Now I want you to keep Passover. Not the Passover, not the Jewish Passover, but the passing over of your sin that I accomplished on the cross. And you keep it by breaking that bread and drinking the juice and remembering the memorial. Back to the cross. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. Personalize that, would you? It's not only that when Jesus is lifted up and glorified and honored, that people see Him and are drawn to Him. When Jesus is lifted up in your life, you come back to it. When He's honored in your life, no matter how far you've strayed, when He is lifted up, He draws you back. Which is why we keep going back to this memorial again and again. Constantly keeping Christ at the center of the temple of our hearts. So verse 4, Yesiah said, Prepare yourselves by your father's household in your divisions according to, and watch that phrase, it comes up a lot, according to the writing of David the king of Israel and according to the writing of his son Solomon. 
Moreover, stand in the holy place according to the sections of the father's households of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the Levites by division of a father's household. Now, slaughter the Passover animals, sanctify yourselves, and prepare for your brethren to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Now watch this. Josiah contributed to the lay people, to all who were present, flocks and lambs and young goats, all for the Passover offerings, numbering 30,000 plus 3,000 bulls. And these were from the king's possession. That's what belonged to Josiah. His officers also contributed a free will offering to the people, the priests and the Levites, Hilkiah and Zechariah and Yehiel, the, the officials of the house of God. They gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flocks and 300 bulls. Conaniah also and Shemaiah and Natanel and his brothers and Hashabiah and Yehiel and Yatsabad, the officers of the Levites, contributed to the Levites for the Passover offerings, 5,000 from the flocks and 500 bulls. Gang, at this Passover, adding all that up, you have a total of 37,600 lambs and goats that were sacrificed that day and another 3,800 bulls in one day at one Passover celebration. That's incredible. That was a lot of blood and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of of free will offering to bring all of this about. Verse 10 tells us, So the service was prepared and the priests stood at their stations and the Levites by their division according to, there it is again, the king's command. They slaughtered the Passover animals and while the priests sprinkled the blood received from their hand, the Levites skinned them. And then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the sections of the father's households of the lay people to present to the Lord as it is written, you could also say according to, the book of Moses. They did this also with the bulls. Verse 13, so they roasted the Passover animals on the fire according to the ordinance. And they boiled the holy things in pots and kettles and pans and carried them speedily to all the lay people. Afterwards, they prepared for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat until night. Of course they were. Therefore, the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were also at their stations according to the command of David. Asaph, Heman, and Jejuthun, the king's seer, and the gatekeepers at each gate did not have to depart from their service. And because of the Levites, their brethren prepared for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Thus all the sons of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Verse 18, There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the day of Samuel the prophet nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah, and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. Nine times that phrase pops up, according to, along with one as is written in the book of Moses. I point that out because you need to understand with this Passover, they didn't miss a thing. They got it 100% right. If they got a letter grade from God on this Passover, it would have been an A++. Because Josiah made sure they did everything exactly by the book. And we're told in verse 18, did you catch this? There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel, the prophet. Those are the pre-king's days. 
Samuel was the prophet who anointed David. This is prior to all of it. Samuel was the prophet who anointed Saul. The Bible even goes back further than that. It tells us that 2 Kings 23-22 says, Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, of which Samuel was the last. He was the last and final judge. Nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. What they're saying here is that as great as Passover was under Solomon, and it was mind-blowing, and Hezekiah, we know from... 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26, it tells us that Hezekiah's Passover surpassed Solomon's. Josiah's Passover was better still. What made the difference? Why was Josiah's Passover so much better? Was it the number of animals that were slaughtered? No. It was because they did everything according to. In other words... This king did it by the word of God. He didn't miss a single thing. Not to be legalistic, gang, but there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do things. There is a hard and fast absolute truth. There is a black and white that you can look at and in Scripture we have truth. And this is the way God says, I'd like it to be. Now, our God is a God of amazing grace. And it shows all kinds of opportunity. Hezekiah and the people, as they came back to celebrate Passover, remember when they had to do it? In the second month. Because they couldn't get it together in time to do it in the first month. But God had graciously provided for that back in the book of Numbers. Josiah comes along and everything is absolutely right. And I point that out just to say the right way always blesses better. The right way always blesses people better. And the right way always blesses the Lord more. And I'm not saying that you know we don't have to get it 100% right to be saved. That's what grace is for. God's grace saves us because we can't get it 100% right. But we strive for the rightness of things. And we strive to be people of the book who live by the book, not to be legalists, but because we know it blesses the Lord. Because we know righteousness is better. 2 Kings 23.25 says, Before Josiah there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. But for all the great faithfulness of Josiah and this great revival under him, that 2 Kings actually goes into quite a bit more, for all of this wonderful life, King Josiah dies at the age of 39. It's unusual. Verse 20 tells us, After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, What are we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that He will not destroy you. Now, was God with Nico? I don't know. I doubt it. Honestly, this was a pagan king, but he's claiming that God is with him. And so, it says, However, Josiah would not turn away from him, verse 22, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. Well, the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him away with the second chariot which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. 
Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion is written in the law of God and his acts first to last. Behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. This just sets up a quandary for me. I've actually tried to explain it in different ways. The death of Josiah. Maybe this was an act of disobedience that was just a foolish move on his part. He shouldn't have gone to war. It was battlefield bravado. And so he was killed. But he was such a good king. All his whole life. He never failed in following the Lord. And I can't even see when Josiah went out to battle anywhere that the Lord said don't go. Except Nico saying that. But I don't trust an Egyptian king. So... Was Josiah in disobedience? Is that why he died? I want to suggest one other possible reason why the Lord allowed Josiah to die so young. Time was running out. Time was running out, and I think part of this was the Lord keeping a promise He made to Josiah that He would not see the horror of what was about to happen. Remember, He promised him, You're not going to see this. You will die in peace. You will go and be buried with your fathers. You will not go through the horror which is about to come upon the kingdom of Judah. I promise you that. Well, time was running out. It was moving quickly. Within 23 years of Josiah's death, the hammer falls on Judah. And I remind you of the verse we read last week, Isaiah 57.1, The righteous man perishes, and no man understands it or takes it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from evil. I I suggest this is a possibility. Is it possible that the Lord allowed that arrow to hit its mark, allowed Josiah to die that day, because the Lord was protecting his righteous king from having to see the horror that was about to fall on Judah? something to consider. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He always does it. He pulls Lot out before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. He always has a way of protecting his righteous ones and pulling them out just in the nick of time. Every century has seen its dark ages since the beginning of time. There has not been a time on the planet Earth where there hasn't been sin. Where there hasn't been struggle and hardship and heartache and terror and horror. But through all of the dark ages of history, the Lord has always been able to call up revival. Even in the worst of times. I mean, this was right after Ammon. Manasseh and Ammon and Judah could not have looked worse. And suddenly, Josiah comes on the scene and God provides revival. He is able to do that over and over. We've seen this in Judah. We've also seen it in the church. In the darkest, most unbelievable times. In fact, during the so-called dark ages of the church, there was still a group of believers. There were always people. God ignited in the Reformation men who stood up and said, No, we believe that every person should be able to read the Word. And they began to get the Word back out into the hands of the lay people. When it was chained to the, to the pulpit by the priests. So in every age, no matter how dark it gets, the Lord has always provided for revival. Five revivals in Judah. But they could not stop the downward plunge. 
Ultimately, man's going to go his own way. Ultimately, man will rebel. All of that I say because I don't know if we will experience any more great revivals. I don't know. I'm not saying we won't. Again, God did it in some of the darkest days of Israel and the church, so it may yet happen, but I'm not counting on it. I'm not sure that it will. Now, because of that, I've had some people actually say to me, that's the problem with you Bible prophecy types. You're always such doom and gloom preachers. And you're always saying, the tribulation's coming. It's just going to go from bad to worse. And I've actually had someone say to me, it's because of that that you have no hope for revival now. Au contraire. I have great hope for revival. And as a matter of fact, if the Lord determines to ignite another revival in this country, I say, bring it on. Hey, that's more fruitful labor for us. That's more people saved. That's more opportunity to see people welcomed into the kingdom. But I'm not personally looking for the next revival. I I can't help it. I cannot help looking beyond the possibility even of another revival here on planet Earth to the coming of Jesus because that's what I want. I would love to have a revival and and the experience of the Spirit of God with us, but wouldn't you rather be face-to-face with Jesus? Wouldn't you rather be in His actual presence? Wouldn't you rather be completely out of your sinful self, not even able to walk out of the door of the church, stub your toe and cuss? Wouldn't you rather be in a place where you're in your glorified body? And all of this is just over? I mean, isn't that what we're looking for? Which is why, as a Bible prophecy type, I am looking to what the Bible promises will happen. And that is the rescue of God's people. I am looking forward to us being pulled out. Before that end comes. And by the way, the Chronicles are written this way. We've seen this as we come to the end here of this book. The chronicler acknowledges all these revivals in Judah, but he emphasizes the coming of the lion of the tribe of Judah. His focus is messianic. We saw this at the very beginning in the way he went through the genealogies. Eight chapters of genealogies. Why? To point toward the coming of Messiah, of the line of Judah, of the line of David. He nails it down. And here as we come down to the very end, he acknowledges these revivals, but his, his emphasis is the coming of the Lion of Judah. Even though chapter 36 is a depressing chapter, it still ends with a glimmer of hope. Chapter 36, verse 1, the people of the land took Joahaz, or in Second Kings it's Jehoahaz. Joahaz is just a short version of it. The son of Josiah, and they made him king in the place of his father in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Why? He was messed up. And the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a fine of a hundred talents of silver and one talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. So, Jehoahaz was king number 18 from David in the line of Judah. We get to Jehoiakim, he's number 19. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. So, Jehoiakim, verse 5, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Amazing. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. 
Verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all the abominations which he did, which was found against him, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, king number 20, Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old. This is absolutely astounding. Eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. How can an eight-year-old do that much evil in three months? I have no idea. But we're beginning to see how truly bad the entire nation had become and how quick it happened after the death of Josiah. This is 11 years and 6 months. And it's already this bad. At the turn of the year, verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord and made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah is now the 21st and final king in Judah. Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. By the way, Zedekiah was such a jerk and so tired of the warnings of Jeremiah, which were for his own good, he was so sick of the warnings he had Jeremiah thrown into prison. Verse 13 tells us he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and of the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So now they go right back into the temple and they mess it up again. Verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until there was no remedy. The Hebrew word for remedy here is marpe, and it means cure or healing. Until there was no more cure. Judah was so sick, there was no cure to heal them. There was nothing that could be done. In Isaiah's commission to Judah, the Lord had told him, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And then Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. That's where Judah is headed. Complete desolation. That's where, by the way, a Christ-rejecting world is headed. A complete desolation. To the place of no healing, no remedy. We read this, and we have with Judah a snapshot, a picture, a portrait of world history happening with one people how God comes again and again and offers salvation and how the people again and again turn against Him and rebel rebel, and they reject Him and all the while they are getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the place of no more remedy and that's where the world is heading. But it seems that history teaches us nothing. Mankind either ignores it or we revise it to suit our present sensibilities. 
speaking of history, let me outline very quickly what happened during these first 16 verses that we just read. What's going on on the world stage? Assyria, mighty Assyria, has now lost ground. Remember Song Karib came up against Hezekiah, lost 185,000 of his best fighting men, and it was downhill after that for Assyria. That was their first loss was against Judah, and they started losing consistently after that until mighty Babylon began to rise in the place of mighty Assyria. Egypt's king Necho, fearing the rise of Babylon, he comes north against Judah to secure a base there, and further, in a surge against the enemy, and so he captures Joahaz, or Jehoahaz. Assyria and Egypt ally themselves against, battle, uh, against Babylon in the famed Battle of Carchemish, which we read, read about in our chapter. Carchemish, he was headed there. That battle happened in 605 B.C., we know historically. Now, the king of Babylon at the time was a man named Nabopolassar, a very famous king. Not the most famous king. His son became the most famous. But Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, sent his son, Nebuchadnezzar, and they stomped on Assyria and they subjugated Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, having died, now becomes king of Babylon, and in three successive campaigns against Judah, he takes them down. First campaign, he enslaved Jehoiakim. Second campaign, he enslaves Jehoiachin and sticks Zedekiah as a puppet king in place. Third campaign, finally he takes out Zedekiah, and we're told that he has all of Zedekiah's sons murdered before him, and Zedekiah's eyes are put out. So that the last thing this wicked king Zedekiah would see is the death of his sons. And then he would be blinded the rest of his life so the memory of the death of his sons would be the last vision that he would carry with him. This whole thing culminated in the destruction of Judah, the raising of Jerusalem, and the tragic uh, burning of the temple in 586 B.C. And by that point, Nebuchadnezzar became the first world dictator ever to rise. Absolute power. Babylon becomes the first absolute world power in all of history. And it happens right before our eyes here at the end of 2 Chronicles. That's what's going on. But as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was, as great as he became, as far-reaching as his power was, even so, he was just a tool in the hand of God. He was used of the Lord for the Lord's purposes and not for Nebuchadnezzar's. And we'll find out more about that when we eventually get to the book of Daniel and the way the Lord humbles Nebuchadnezzar. And it's an interesting story. But in a message from the Lord through Jeremiah at the beginning of Zedekiah's final reign there in Judah, Jeremiah wrote the following, God saying, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Oh, was Nebuchadnezzar a believer in Jesus Christ? Was he a follower? Not at this point. (laughs) At the end of his life, I believe he would become a follower. But at this point, he was God's servant because God needed a tool of discipline and of punishment. Not just for Judah, by the way, but for all the surrounding nations. Edom would be wiped out by Babylon. Moab would be wiped out by Babylon. Ammon would be wiped out. All the nations around there, Assyria, Egypt, we talked about all of this. Well, verse 17 tells us, Therefore he brought up, he, that being the Lord, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, 
who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or infirm, he gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Verse 19, one of the most tragic verses in all of Israel's history. Then they burned the house of God. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and they burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. The psalmist in Psalm 74 verse 7 details this account. He says, They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, Let's completely subdue them. And so they have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet nor is there any among us who knows how long. Now listen, i got to read that last verse again. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. But gang, they had the signs. They had the prophets. They just weren't listening. The warnings were there constantly throughout the entire history of Judah, but they were not paying attention. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son. But are we listening? Is the world even paying attention? I watch administration after administration after administration on the world stage here in America. And I just shake my head. Is anybody paying attention? When I look at, at the approach right now, the current administration toward Israel and their attempts for the creation of the Palestinian state and what they're doing in the division of Jerusalem and, and the pressure they're exerting on Israel right now such that Israel is now saying we're alone in the world. Our greatest friend and ally, America, is no longer our friend and ally. We've got to go it alone. There is even talk right now that by December, Israel will attack Iran to take out the nuclear reactors because they cannot trust America to stand with her any longer. And I see all this happening and I think, will history teach us nothing? Is anybody listening? I read a fantastic letter that was written to the President by uh, Bridget Gabrielle. And she asked this question. She said, Mr. President, do you not, are you, not, you, you claim to be a student of history. But it's revisionist history. You're not looking at true history if you think you can deal with these radicals And if you think that you can give Israel over into their hands, you're not paying attention. Are we listening? Is our world any more aware of the signs of the times today than Judah was at the end of their existence? Verse 20 says, Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. They, by the way, included four names that you would probably find familiar. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar. Now maybe Belteshazzar isn't as familiar, but let me give you their four Hebrew names. There's Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. So what we're seeing right here, this is when Daniel and his friends were taken as young men, 16, 17, 18 years old, were taken to Babylon to be brainwashed and retrained in the temple courts of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he did. It didn't work with these four. But that's when they were taken. 
Verse 21 tells us this, this happened to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now listen, we've been going for an hour and five minutes, but we've only covered three chapters, not the entire Torah. So I need you to relax just for a couple more minutes and stick with me. I have a couple more things to say. Here at the end, we've been handed a new piece of information that we haven't really seen or at least recognized possibly up until now in verse 21. All the days of its desolation, that is the desolation of Judah and their captivity, were kept until, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So right there, we know the captivity is a 70 year captivity. Now Jeremiah had already prophesied that. You're going to go into captivity 70 years. The verdict of the Lord that brought about the captivity, the verdict of our judge, was guilty for rebellion against the Lord. Guilty for paganism. Guilty for idolatry. Well, that was the verdict. The sentence of the Lord is captivity for 70 years. Why 70? Is it just that God likes that number 7? And what we see indicated in verse 21, and we find in other places in Scripture, is that it would be 70 years to make up for 490 years worth of ignored Sabbaths. To wrap our minds around that, what we're saying is from the point that the people came into the land all the way up to the destruction by Babylon, almost 500 years, they had never kept the Sabbath year. What's the Sabbath year? Leviticus 25 God prescribed it. He said, for six years, plant, reap, grow. I will give you great things. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to produce wonders for you. But in the seventh year, let the land lie fallow. It's a Sabbath year. Do not plant. Leave it alone. Just let it lie. In their entire stay in the land, Israel ignored that command. It wasn't an if-and. If you'd like to... Maybe it would be good for the land if you did. No, God said, you will do this. This is part of the covenant. But every seventh year that came along, they planted and they reaped, like the six years before it, across 490. Why? Why didn't they just let it lie and rest for that seventh year? Two reasons. Greed and lack of faith. Greed because they must have thought, okay, you know, if Jacob and his family aren't planting, but I plant... I'll be able to get ahead because everybody's going to come to me to buy produce because they're not going to be able to get it from Jacob and his family over here. So, guilt, greed. Let, let's, let's plant and sell. And everybody just kept planting. Second reason, though, is more, more upsetting and it is a lack of faith. It's the people saying, my budget can't take a year off. I can't do this. If I do this, we will starve. What's interesting is the Lord answered that before it ever happened. In Leviticus 25.20, He said, If you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we don't sow or gather in our crops? What do we do? And God said ahead of time, Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year, it will bring forth enough crops for three years. To cover the seventh when you're not planting, to cover the eighth when you just start planting again, and to bring you into the ninth to double over when you start to reap of the ground there in the ninth year. I got you covered. He says when you're sowing in the eighth year, you'll still eat things from the old crop, eating until the ninth year when the crop comes in. Taking care of. And all you have to do, Israel, all you have to do is trust me. I said I'd do it. Believe me. 
But the people would not believe God for it. And that is the underlying problem of all their rebellion. They would not believe God for His promises. He said this is what will happen. He promised. And they wouldn't believe Him for it. And in learning from history again, we have to ask the question, do we believe God for His promises or not? Do we believe Him or not? I will take care of you. Do I believe that? And if so, how is that borne out in the action of my faith? In an applicable verse here, Galatians 6-7, Paul writes, God has not mocked whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so they sowed for 490 years every seventh year, and they reaped 70 years. And truly, God blessed His land. For 70 years the land lay fallow, no planting occurred, while Israel was in Babylonian captivity. And that was the sentence for their disobedience. The chapter ends in verse 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Flip over to Ezra chapter 1. Look at this. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Wait a minute. (laughs) Didn't I just read that? I did. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kings of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. And whoever is there among you, among all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So where we end Second Chronicles, we begin the book of Ezra. And I, that's just a little preview. We're going to talk about those two verses in depth on Sunday. We will finish one book and start another. We've never done this before, but on the same consecutive teaching, we end one and begin another at the same time. It would be kind of cool. And there are some things in these two verses that are absolutely phenomenal. Here's what I want you to hear tonight. We end Second Chronicles following the disaster and the taking into Babylonian captivity. The chronicler steps beyond those 70 years and gives a glimmer of hope. It's not over for Judah. They will be back. God is still looking out for His people. Second Chronicle ends with the glimmer of hope. Ezra begins with the same glimmer of hope. But there's a revealing question here. And I want you to see this before we leave tonight. Why is there a 70 year gap between verses 21 and 22? In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Skip! Now in the first year of Cyrus... We jump 70 years. That's not even talked about by the chronicler. He doesn't touch it. This great historian who has given us very precise history. In fact, we covered 20, what is it, 22 years? 22 and a half years in one chapter, in chapter 36. But when we get to between verses 21 and 22, he leaps over 70 years and talks about their return. Why the gap? Well, let me ask you this. 
Those of you who are wearing watches, what does it say on your watch face right now? Who has a watch? Look, look at your watch face and tell me, tell me what it says. Huh? Quartz. Quartz. Okay. Yours says quartz. What does yours say? I, I don't want to hear the time, Danny. <laughs> what, what are the words written on, on your watch? Timex. Okay. Yours says quartz and yours says what? Wrist, freckle. That's great. <laughs> You might have, like, I don't know if, if Swatch is even in anymore, but Timex or Fossil or... Anyone have a Rolex, by the way? No? Okay, I was looking for a ride home. Anyway. NRA. Now listen to NRA. <laughs> a specialized watch. What does it say on God's timepiece? If you were to look at God's wristwatch, it would have one word written on it. Israel. Israel is God's timepiece. Between verses 21 and 22, what happens? Israel's out of the land. So we skip 70 years because it's insignificant. It doesn't matter. They're not there. So the history of the land, and this is the point. You know, all Scripture, the the Bible is not the book of all history. It is the book of God's dealings with the people of Israel until Jesus comes through those people, and then it opens out to all history and the salvation of all people. But we need to understand that. This is an absolute key in understanding all biblical prophecy. Israel is God's timepiece. Now, near the end of this 70 years, an old man was reading through, pouring over Jeremiah's scroll when it hit him. Babylon was a 70-year sentence. The people didn't... You know, the people went to Babylonian captivity and they settled in. In fact, when we start Ezra, you're going to find out only a handful made their way back to Judah because the people had gotten used to it. It's Babylon. We're right, right by the, the river Chabar. It's a nice place. There's food aplenty. And yeah, we're subservient, but we got, we got a place to live here. So, so they stayed. But this one old guy, he's reading through Jeremiah's scroll, and he discovers this. It's a 70-year sentence, and he thinks, we're almost at 70 years. And this old man by the name of Daniel, fell to his knees and he began to repent and pray for himself and his people even before he finishes praying. He opens his eyes and the angel Gabriel is standing there, probably, I think, tapping his foot because he's waiting for Daniel to finish praying. That's how quick God responded. And what was, if you read it in the Hebrew, it takes about three minutes to read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9 and Gabriel's standing there waiting for him when he opens his eyes. And as Daniel prays that and realizes this gap of 70 years, Gabriel begins to pour out a message from God of the greatest timepiece of prophecy Israel would ever receive. Daniel chapter 9. Flip over there. We'll end there tonight. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, make a note of this. If you don't already have this note in your Bibles, you need to know this. Weeks is not weeks. Weeks is the Hebrew word Shabua. It's the literal equivalent of the English word heptad. What's a heptad? It's like a dozen, but it refers to seven, not twelve. So what this says literally is 70 sevens. 70 time periods of seven have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, 
to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Has that happened? Has that happened? No, it hasn't. There has not been an end to sin, at least as far as I'm seeing in the world today. The holy place has not been re-anointed. We haven't seen vision and prophecy put to an end or sealed up. We haven't seen the beginning of, of everlasting righteousness, not like it will be when Jesus comes. So 77s have been decreed for Israel, verse 25. And he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, seven sevens that is, which is 49 years, and 62 weeks, 62 sevens, which is 434 years. It will not be built again, with, or it will be built again, that is Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, which we're going to read about in the book of Nehemiah. Then after the 62 weeks, or the equivalent gang, 483 years will go by based on this prophecy. And the Messiah will be cut off or killed. And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, then there will, or even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, I'm just going to do this quickly, but check this out. 69 out of the 70 Shabuah, 69 out of the 77s have been fulfilled precisely. Exactly as the angel brought it to Daniel. Exactly as it was written. And back in around 500 was when it was written. And if you track down through these years, the 49 years, 49 years from when Daniel received that prophecy, it was 49 years. And then... In the book of Nehemiah, we will see this decree issued. It will be another 434 years from the issuing of the decree of Nehemiah to go back from Artaxerxes. He would go back and take people back and they would rebuild Jerusalem. Not just the temple. That's what Ezra does. But Nehemiah, they rebuild Jerusalem from the issuing of that decree. Track it through history. 434 years lands you to the week Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on the donkey. And the prophecy says after this. It doesn't say right at that day. It says after those, those weeks are completed, the 483 years, Messiah will be cut off. Jesus was crucified. And the people of the prince who is to come will come destroy the holy city. Well, that was 70 AD. Rome destroyed Jerusalem and for the final time took out the temple. Exactly as the prophecy tells us. It's It's astounding. What about the final seven? The final Shavuah, time period of seven. If Israel, now go back to this, think about this. If Israel is God's timepiece, then once the destruction of Jerusalem happened and the wiping out of Israel happened, the watch stopped. There is a gap. We see the example, we see one example of a gap between verses 21 and 22 in 2 Chronicles. We see another gap between verses 26 and and 27 of the book of Daniel. But it's not a gap of 70 years. It's a gap of roughly 2,000. We are in the gap. In fact, we're at the end of the gap. Jesus described the gap this way. 
Luke 21.24, he said, They will fall, speaking of Israel, by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The gap is the times of the Gentiles. Why? Because Israel's not in the land. And when the people Israel are not in the land of Israel, God's watch doesn't work. It stops. Because it's by Israel that God measures time prophetically. But Rick, he had a little problem. It's a nice theory, but Israel's back in the land. In fact, Israel has been back in the land since 1948. And in 1967, they even retook eastern Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So, why isn't the clock ticking? Why haven't we entered into that final seven weeks? What's going on here? Why is the timepiece not up and running? Ezekiel put it this way. They're back in the land, but they're dry bones. Well, the bones, I believe, are rattling. But it is a secular nation. Israel today is not a religious nation. There are believers, obviously, in Israel. There are strong Jewish believers. In fact, there are radical Jewish believers there within Israel. Ultra-conservative Jews. But the land is not a religious land. Benjamin Netanyahu, as much of a hero as he is to me, is not, is not a religious leader. It is a secular land. And the Spirit of God, and Ezekiel describes this, Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, he describes how the Spirit blows over the dry bones representing Israel, and they come to life, and they enflesh, and they grow, and His Spirit comes back into the people, and then the clock starts to tick. But something causes that to happen in Daniel 9.27. Going back in 26, it says, The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Beginning in 27, it says, And he, which is the prince, the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come, that's Antichrist, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. One Shabuah, seven years. But in the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate or literally on the one who causes terror. Israel will sign a seven-year peace treaty, a covenant with Antichrist. Who is Antichrist? Is he Muslim? (laughs) That's the big question today. And there's a new book out, The Muslim Antichrist, that's that's interesting. I I don't think it's on path with Scripture. I I still think he's going to come out of Europe. I still think there's going to be a Roman connection to Antichrist because of the Roman connection. And we can discuss that another time. But gang, the moment that Israel enters into, signs that seven-year peace treaty, which is what they want more than anything in the world. Peace. Just give us peace. The moment they sign that treaty with this man of peace, so-called, who is Antichrist, God's watch starts to work again. And you can count down from the moment of that signature exactly seven years until the return of Jesus Christ and the putting down of all things and the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. It's that precise. One of the ways, by the way, that we know that the rapture happens before this is nothing happens to let us know when the rapture is going to happen. If the rapture happens at the end of the seven years, all we need to do is wait for the treaty to be signed, and we know in seven years we're going to be raptured. But the Bible says no one knows. 
the day or the hour. Because the day or the hour of our rapture, of our taking out, here's where I want to end. It's like Josiah. The church is like Josiah. Romans 15.4, Paul says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And we have a great hope. In fact, the Bible calls it, Titus 2.13, the blessed hope. Paul refers to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. They're two separate things. The glorious appearing, which will be at the end of the seventh, the final Shavuah, the blessed hope before it, the rapture of the church where we are pulled out, we are like Josiah. God promised we will not be here when the hammer of wrath and judgment falls on the world. In the same way that Josiah was not there when the hammer fell on Judah. And so Paul is able to write in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that concludes the book of 2 Chronicles. And we have a great hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You will, Father, write these things on our hearts and especially tonight bring great encouragement to us. The hope of our salvation, the hope of Jesus calling, come up here and our going home to be with You forever. And Father, if we are so far along in the times of the Gentiles... Lord, we recognize we are very, very close to coming home. May we live every moment with that knowledge, that hope, and that passionate motivation to see people saved by the name of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.